This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Neil Kinnock. Lord Kinnock was leader of the British Labour Party and leader of the opposition from 1983 to 1992. From 1995 to 2004, he served two terms in the European Commission, first of all as Commissioner for Transport and then as Vice President. He entered the House of Lords in 2005 and, of course, has done many, many other things apart from that. Neil, as you know, we could talk about so many different things. We only have about 25 minutes, so to give some kind of structure and not to be too uh, sidetracked by many other issues. Let's talk about Europe, the European Union, the, the journey of the Labour Party since the early 80s, shall we say, and, and Neil Kinnock's journey on, on Europe in that, in that same period. I mean, it's no secret, not exactly a scoop, that in the early 80s, the Labour Party wasn't the most ardent supporter of the EEC as it then was. When, when, when would you track the, kind of the, the start of the, the evolution of a kind of warming by the Labour Party towards what the, the EEC in those days was trying to, what it was about and trying to achieve? In my case, and I suspect that of many others, uh, the warming, as you put it, uh, began in the immediate wake of the 1975 referendum. In the period before then, the conventional, even traditional, uh, resistance to the community, the common market, uh, came from those who had huge affection and affiliation with the Commonwealth, uh, with those who thought of uh, the European community as a, quote, quote, rich man's club, uh, and those who had, in my view, then and now, illusions about parliamentary sovereignty in a mo modern world, which meant that they were antagonistic to what they thought of as a loss of power. From the outset, right from the 1960s, frankly, when Europe was obviously at the centre of all political debate, I retained my memory of uh, an Aaron Bevan's maxim in his book written in 1951, In Place of Fear, in which he said, I quote him precisely, National sovereignty is a concept which history is emptying of meaning. So my uh, adherence to the general sentiment of being antagonistic to common market entry came much more from my fear that the golden triangle of Northwestern Europe would mean, if we joined the common market, the centripetal pull of investment and jobs away from the United Kingdom, and particularly from what I learned was described as the peripheral areas. That meant Wales, South Wales, my area that I represented in Parliament from 1970, which was going through a very traumatic, massive and speedy industrial transition. 
and I felt was extremely vulnerable and wouldn't be assisted by being part of the common market. That debate, discussion, those divisions lasted right through to the 1975 referendum. Then with a very conclusive result, I and several others thought that there was an absolute need to reconsider our views, especially when I heard from 76 on of comprehensive efforts in the European Commission to establish a pretty radical and forward-looking regional policy uh, because they were acutely aware of the dangers of that centripetal pull and were trying to develop means of uh, combating it. Then, of course, in the late 70s, early 80s, the Labour Party fell under the influence uh, from the pole position of the National Executive Committee of uh, Tony Benn and his associates who were uh, rampant uh, anti-European uh, community. Uh, they influenced the party to the extent that by 83, in the general election, we had a commitment in our Labour manifesto to withdraw from the European community. Now, I knew that that was uh, a delusion and also potentially very damaging. But because I, together with Michael Foote and others, Stan Orm uh, and several other people on the Bevanite Tribunite wing of the Labour Party, uh, were fighting so many other battles on so many other fronts. I had to wait until the wake of the 83 election and my candidature for the leadership to try to start to change thinking and the agenda towards the community. Okay. Uh, I started that in my leadership campaign with um, a slogan and uh, uh, some writing to bag it up uh, under the heading A New Deal for Europe, A Square Deal for the United Kingdom. And that pretty much summed up my effort to advocate reform and development in the community at the same time as not losing any advantages of participation in the single market, the common market, as we then described it. This was pre-85 uh, inside my own country. I can give you the chapter and verse of the efforts that I undertook together with others to change the policy, which we'd secured by about 87, but in very categoric official Labour Party terms by 1989. Sorry to butt in, Neil, but I mean, as you said, you were fighting so many battles on so many fronts when you became leader in 83, and it, it couldn't have been your top priority to try and, uh, should we say, educate and steer the party towards a more pro-European stance. So when did, you, when did you feel that the timing was right? Because you had the small matter of things like militant to deal with. I mean, and, and Europe, even to ardent pro-Europeans, couldn't have been maybe uh, a top priority in the early 80s, surely? Uh, no, not in the early 80s. I had to bide my time until I actually became elected leader. By the 1984 European Parliament election, I'd secured uh, two things. 
a much closer cooperation and coordination with our sister parties in what was then called the Confederation of European Socialist Parties. And that was having an influence, especially in local government and amongst our affiliated trade unions. So we softened the line on antagonism towards the European community and got a very respectable result in the 84 election, having hit rock, rock bottom in the European Parliament elections in 1979. So the recovery was beginning, but had a long, long way to go. Over the years between 83 and uh, 87, the relationship with the European Socialist Parties became much warmer, uh, particularly uh, I developed friendships with Willy Brandt and um, Vin Koch uh, and Lina Jospin and others in the French Socialist Party, together with trying to nourish relationships with the Nordic parties. And of course, only Denmark of the Nordic countries was actually in the community then. But also, not just going to see them, but getting them to come to address conferences and do seminars uh, in our country. So that by, um, or rather, let's say, put it like this, amongst those that I was in most contact with, of course, was Jacques Delors as president of the European Commission. And Jacques and I spoke many times uh, together with his members of his cabinet uh, about securing the change in labor policy uh, that I wanted and they supported. Since you mentioned Jacques Delors, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you in mid-flow, but a lot of... Uh commentators and modern historians ascribe a great deal of importance to the, the now famous speech that Jacques Delors made to the Trade Union Congress in yeah. 1988. Do you, do you share that? There was a seminal moment or was it already there, there and, 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 and Jacques Delors' speech was just the kind of the icing on the cake, as it were? Well, no, it was very, very deliberate. Uh, from about 86, uh, we talked about the possibility of Jacques addressing a Labour Party conference or a major trade union conference, or a Europe conference of some, some kind, in order particularly to categorically specify his ambitions for the social dimension of the single market, which of course had come into being, uh, at least in legislative terms, uh, in 1985. And so we were just looking for the right time. Uh, in 87, in the immediate wake of the general election, I didn't think that uh, that was the most propitious time. So we talked in terms of doing the Transport and General Workers Conference or whatever. And then one of uh, Jacques Cabinet, uh, Howell Kerry Jones, a Welshman who I'd known for many years um, and was thought by many people to be the father of the social dimension, Howell said, what about the TUC? And I said, smack on, that's the <laughs> one, because the TUC leadership was changing. Right. John Monks was coming uh, into the position of Secretary General of the TUC, and there were several people on the TUC General Council by then 
whose attitude towards the European community had changed. So Jacques, it was decided, would make the great social dimension speech to the TUC in 88. That's what took place. And it really did uh, turn the key in the lock. Uh, a lot of preparation had gone into it in the previous years. As I said earlier, with uh, a changed experience of trade unions uh, going to and working in the, the federations and associations uh, to which they belonged in the European community. And also, of course, a great deal of local government contact had been taking place. So we'd really rolled the pitch, as it were. And when Jacques uh, made an absolutely excellent speech, hit every single button, uh, got a standing ovation. They were singing Frere Jacques um, and Norman Willis, the outgoing General Secretary of the TUC, was, of course, by that time, very firmly on side and a dear friend and comrade of mine. Uh, and so all the ducks were lined up to mix my metaphors. And uh, Jacques uh, made a speech which made the shift in attitudes in our affiliated trade unions conclusive. The only real exception to that was, of course, my own union, the Transport and General Workers Union. But by 1988, at least on the European community, even they are large numbers in excess of a million votes in the Labour Party conference, uh, couldn't make the difference because we'd stacked up such large support. Okay, well, moving on then. You, so you leave the leadership of the Labour Party uh, in 92 as a clearly pro-European party, and paradoxically much more pro-European than the Conservative Party by the early 90s. Most people would agree with that. And but, much more united, and much more united. Right. And you're still a young man. You're in your early 50s, and then you get this offer to go to become a European commissioner. Now, be honest, Neil, when you got this position offered to you, did you think that there might be a bit of a political backwater, Brussels being a political backwater place, and the job might be a bit of a place going nowhere? No, that never ever occurred to me. There was a possibility in 92, in the immediate wake of the election, that I would replace uh, Bruce Millen, the Labour British European Commissioner. Right. And that's certainly what Bruce wanted. And he told John Major, the Prime Minister, that he wanted to retire and he wanted his position to be taken by myself. Major was in favour of it, but in his cabinet, there were several people who said to him, look, a fortnight ago, we were telling the people that Kinnock couldn't run a wealth stall, so we can hardly make him a European commissioner now. So uh, Major stood back from it. But as soon as the formal end of that Jacques Delors commission came about, Major phoned me in July of uh, 19... Uh, 94, and said, as you know, I've long wanted you to be a European commissioner. If you wanted to be, um, I'd like you to take the place. And I said to him, well, obviously I've thought about it and I would very much like to do it. Also specifying that I wanted to be the commissioner with the transport portfolio because I, I thought that despite having 
had some excellent commissioners, Carl van Meert and Stanley Clinton Davis, mm. it had never got the prominence and scope that transport deserves. So I wanted to change that. And fortunately, Jacques Santerre, the president of the commission, the new president, agreed with me. And so I was very happy to go to Brussels. If I'd ever had any doubt, it would have been rectified by what my wife had said uh, when she got elected, or rather, when she got selected to become the Labour member of the European Parliament for Southeast Wales in 1993. Um, she responded to a question, um, why, when you could have got selected for any number of parliamentary seats in Westminster, have you decided to go for the European Parliament? She said, there's more chances of development for Wales and the world uh, from Europe. Uh, and in any case, they are obsessed with the future. Westminster's obsessed with the past. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people don't appreciate that you served, you know, two terms as, uh, in the European Commission. That's 10 years. I mean, we can't go through every single moment of your 10-year career there, but we're... That someone that maybe one highlight and one and maybe non not so good experience of your ten years in in Brussels, Neil. Uh, not so good experience was yes, quite early on, and then it was repeated at intervals. When I had a very qualified view towards enlargement and towards the euro, right. which of course were the two great projects, and my view on enlargement was that obviously I was very enthusiastically in favor of it, but that the commission should be very fastidious in making decisions and recommendations. And that the last thing we should do was to undertake a major enlargement on the same predetermined date. We should allow enlargement uh, or encourage the council to allow it only when the requirements, the entry requirements, were satisfied and sustainable. Now, obviously, given the uh, velocity as well as the intensity of feeling about enlargement uh, in the member states, um, my point of view wasn't very popular. I still think it was correct. And by uh, saying it, I didn't make too many friends at the outset. Right. Later on, I made many friends over it. But unfortunately, uh, I was making a speech to the Siemens European Management Conference, uh, which was a closed-door affair. A copy of my speech was, quote, quote, left on a photocopier. Right. And it found its way into the French uh, newspaper Les Echos, and uh, so consequently became a source of embarrassment uh, to Jacques Santerre, the president, uh, who did a press conference, made a few silly remarks, which I could attribute to the fact that English wasn't his first language. But it did mean that I had to go up to his office and bang his desk, literally, <laughs> and um, he withdrew his comments. Uh, we got on quite well after that, uh, but the case had been made and it was 
a very awkward case which the convention and the establishment didn't accept, even though it was right. The high point was securing the biggest change in European maritime law in history. What I managed to do was, over a period of four years, convince the European Council to adopt in full and in law all the international maritime organization guidelines. Uh, these were the conventions governing the law of the seas and transport on the seas. But of course, there were very, very, very few countries which, in which they had the force of statutory law. Uh, I managed to get the whole body of those conventions turned into maritime law. And one of the results of that, of course, is that in the years since the early few years of this century, there have been no major maritime collisions, wrecks, ferry disasters, or any of the appalling personal and ecological hideous uh, occurrences that in Europe on European waters we'd become used to over the centuries. Wow. Uh, now, not all that, of course, is attributable to the law. Uh, it's attributable to the way in which uh, the mercantile companies have taken the law more seriously in terms of uh, training their crews, qualifications of crews, standards of safety afloat, um, equipment, whether communication equipment or safety equipment. But thank God, we've had 15 years, probably more, free of the kind of appalling tragedies that we've seen previously. I mean, I could boast about my accomplishments as a commissioner <laughs> a lot more, but that really okay. has been a high point. I'm sure there are many more, but you simply haven't got time, unfortunately, to go, to go through any of the yeah. other ones. But let's bring this conversation before we finish, because the time is ticking away, to the to the, to the present day. And the, and the Labour Party stands under Keir Starmer's leadership on our departure following Brexit. Do you, how would you characterize the the position of the Labour Party now? And and you is there a, a it's a, as you can ascertain because you're pretty well plugged in. Uh, is there a strategy behind the, the positioning of the Labour Party when it comes to the the Europe question, quote unquote? Well, patently, and this is no secret, really, the attitude of the Labour Party formally towards uh, the vexed issue of the European Union is nervous. Uh, I can understand why. There is no doubt about the preferences of the leadership uh, and the common sense of our full engagement in the European Union, uh, the single market and the customs union. No doubt at all about that. And they share that view, of course. And now, I think, with a pretty uh, dependable majority of the British people. But... In terms of taking action to promote return to the European Union, then it's understandable, if regrettable, uh, that no action is taken. Uh, my own belief is that accepting the result of the 2016 uh, referendum, 
and all the horrors that accompanied it, uh, we should nonetheless make clear that there have been over the last uh, six years, and there will be in the future, very big bills for Brexit. And they're not only to be seen in the queues, the endless forms, the impediments to trade, the terrible friction in trying to secure movement of goods and services with our biggest market still, and for a very long time to come, the inadequacy of the so-called trade agreements that are intended to make up for the fact that not only were we trading barrier-free with uh, nearly 30 other developed economies, but we had access to scores of countries across the world through the trade agreements made by the European Union. Um, all of that is evidence, and it doesn't just conclude the bills. The Office of Budget Responsibility assesses the loss in potential growth at 4%, and the same Office of Budget Responsibility will tell you that every 1% loss in economic growth means 9 billion lost in public resources, in revenues from taxation and other fees. So if we are throwing away 32 billion in public resources, the effects are going to be felt in health service and education, in policing, in efforts to combat poverty, in developments in infrastructure, the whole gamut of government responsibility and public need. So consequently, I believe it would be absolutely legitimate for the Labour Party to continually campaign in order to draw attention to the real bills of Brexit and also offer alternative means of generating growth and establishing much better, closer relationships with the European Union single market. So that's the view I take. I understand the reticence of the leadership. I sympathize with it in many ways because they're up against a kind of mythology about Britain's place in the world. And like rumor, myth is much more difficult to fight than the true facts of life, the realities. So I, I sympathize with their difficulties, but I really do think there's a root of public education and uh, of opposition and a presentation of alternatives, which could really catch the public understanding and the public mood. Well, a final question then, Neil, on that. And given this nervousness you talk about, do you nonetheless see some initial signs that the Labour Party front bench and leadership is starting to listen to these kind of arguments you've been putting forward? Are they, are they still nervous, somewhat critics would say scared, of even addressing the issue? Do you see some positive signs they are realising that they should be more yeah. combative on talking about the cost of Brexit, as you say? Well, Keir, very sensibly, is presenting the Labour Party with the key themes of security, prosperity, and patriotism. And 
all of those themes absolutely dovetail with the need to change our relationship with the European Union, which he also advocates. So I think that there are the ingredients there, given the priorities being attached to security, prosperity, and patriotism, that will assist in shaping by the next election a really cogent, responsible, and convincing case for uh, changing the relationship in a constructive and forward-looking way. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Neil Kennock, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, it's a pleasure.